Welcome to Search for Meaning. I'm Yoshi Zweiback. Thanks for joining me. guest today is Mara Gad. She's the author of The Color of Love, a story of a mixed race Jewish girl. You're going to want to get this book. You're going to want to think about how we can all do a better job of reaching out and including others in our communities, in our synagogues. Stay tuned. I felt like I really had to think, which was so nice. It was exciting. Right. Well, thank you so much for taking time to be here. Um, I really enjoyed reading your book, and we're going to talk about your book. But I wanted to start just by asking you to share a little bit about your childhood growing up in Chicago and, um, you know, some of those experiences. We have so many things in common because we're almost the same age, and we did Nifty together and had some of those experiences, although we never were in the same you know, conventions in, in the same region. And then we ended up working at the same summer camp. But tell me a little bit about your 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 experiences growing up Jewishly. Um, so I grew up in the city of Chicago in the 70s. Um, and growing up in the city and being Jewish um, was unusual in the 70s. Most people lived in the suburbs, you know, Skokie, Lincolnwood, and then further out. Um, we belonged to Emmanuel Congregation, which was one of two reform... Which is right on the lake. It's beautiful. Literally yeah. on the lake. Um, my family had been Orthodox until my mother's father woke up one day and literally decided that they were going to be reform. And so it happened. Do you that know fast. what, what the, you know, what inspired that? Is there a family story about how that happened? I think so. You know, he died before I was born, but what my mother tells me is that when his, he was young when his father died, um, and he would go to say, this is your mom's, my dad. mom's dad, um, he was, I think he was under 13, so even pre-bar mitzvah. And he said that he would go to say Kaddish during Shloshim and that the men were just not kind to him, hmm. you know? And he, he never felt supported by the Orthodox community. I think that probably stayed with him. And, and so when it was time for my mother to, to sort of get a Jewish education, he looked at my Bubby and said, we're not doing this. Hmm. And they joined Emmanuel and my Bubby and Zadie laid one of the cornerstones and, and we were, you know, sort of very early in as, as city dwelling reformed Jews. Wow. Um, so like Herman Shalman was my rabbi growing up, which for my whole life will be one of the greatest gifts ever. He was a truly remarkable man, but my mother was his first confirmation class. I was his last. Wow. You know, it's that level of Lador of Ador in our and he, family. And he passed away, I think, two years ago? A couple of years ago. Over yeah. 100 years old. Yeah. I got a chance to go to the congregation with uh, our mutual friend, Rabbi Ken Chasen. Yes. And we, we did some music there, and we really just had such a wonderful time. And it was just, it was beautiful. It was it was kind of chilly for, uh, you know, someone living yeah. in L.A. Because it was like, <laughs> it was like April. <laughs> and uh, our host said, uh, Rabbi Craig Morantz, who's from L.A., Craig said, I want to take you guys to a baseball game. And we said, oh, that'd be fun. And it was as cold as I've ever been at a baseball game. But I was excited because I, I finally got to be, but you, you know, did you go to field. the, you went, okay, as long as you went to the right baseball field. It was pretty amazing. No, it, it felt really exciting to be there. But the sun, there was a certain point, it was a day game where the sun kind of went under and I, I had to go to a concession stand and buy a sweatshirt because I, I had a coat. Absolutely. And I was like, it is, this is too cold. Yeah. Um, well, just so you know, Alan Berlin, who is, yeah, I do you know. Know, yeah. so Alan and I grew up together and we went to college together. He and I decided that going on the VIP Wrigley Field Tour at Biennial in December was a good idea. Was a good idea. Yeah. And spoiler alert, it was not a good idea. Not a good idea. That's not even a spoiler. I could not have told a, you that I, that was not a good idea. And I said, I texted him at one point and I said, I think this is the dumbest thing that we will ever do. We know better than this. So Alan and I were classmates ah. um, and started HUC the same year. And uh, and so I've known him for 
28 or nine years. Well, then let's use Alan as a through story to my Jewish upbringing. So tell me about tell me about that. So he, you guys were like in youth group together. And- Alan, and, well, we weren't in youth group together because he was he grew up on the south side, but we were in Sifty together. We were as Rui together. Um, Alan and <laughs> we, I used to sing with Alan and a guy named Scott Cohen during all the bait cafes. You know, we would sing. Yeah. We would sing um, Cat Stevens songs. and Alan's a really good guitarist. He's, he's a very talented yeah. guitarist. Um, and he is laughing and horrified that his ears are burning right now that we're, we're talking about I, him we're, on I'm going to send him the podcast. I actually uh, recruited Alan to come work with me. I grew up in Omaha, so fellow Midwesterner, um, but a different region. I was in the Missouri Valley mm-hmm. region. And I w- we went to uh, like Normal, Illinois, and uh, Decatur for, sure. for conventions. But, but we wouldn't go to Chicago because that was a different region. But then Alan and I met in rabbinical school and became buddies. And I was working the summer after our first year, I was working at the camp that I'd grown up at in Colorado, Schwader Camp. And so I, uh, the director of the camp said, we're looking for someone to be a program director and um, someone to be a song leader and you know these yeah. different jobs. And so I reached out, even though I had been a song leader for many years, I was trying to do something a little bit different that summer. So Alan was a song leader and we had a... We were roommates, actually, that whole summer. Oh, he's, he has always been one of the loveliest humans. And I'm so happy to know that he's still that same really good guy, you know? Um, but now I, I was president of my youth group. And I was vice president of SIFTI. I was the social programming vice president of SIFTI my senior year of high school. I grew up going to Azrui. I, um, I've been to Israel many times. I'm not with not with the reform movement, with the Federation in Chicago. Um, and I did one of, it's. I think it's now been absorbed by Birthright, but once upon a time there was a program called Shurashim. And the one summer that they did a college age program, I was a part of that pilot program um, where we went to Poland for five days first with the education director of Yad Vashem and then went to Israel for six weeks and toured Israel with Israelis who were our age. And so they were out of the army. And we spent, you know, this sort of immersive time with them. Um, I had as, I would say that I had as involved a Jewish upbringing as a reformed kid can have. Um, I did everything. Well, you know, youth group, camp, Mm -hmm. engagement in your synagogue, a trip to Israel, that is sort of all the things that other than if you had an opportunity to attend a Jewish day school, which not every city has a reformed Jewish day school, not every kid has that opportunity, and you know it really depends on your family and other kinds of things, but you did all the things that Well, you and would, we did. We had do. reason to look into Jewish day school, but they wouldn't take me. The day school wouldn't take The you. day schools would not take me. And why is that? Um, the color of my skin was prohibitive. And that what, but this was obviously not a reformed Jewish day school. No, back in, this was probably 1982 ish, 81 ish. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And is that one of the, your earliest memories of that feeling of, wait a second, I'm Jewish, and then someone else is telling me I'm not Jewish? Oh God, no. No, no, no. Because by then you were 10, 11, 12. I years was, old. yeah. By then yeah. I was, I was all in. And, and I, you know, I will say that. Probably the difference between then and now is back then people talked behind my back, right? People were not as confrontational about it as they are today. But I think in general today is a much more confrontational time than it was in the 70s and 80s. Um, No, I always had a palpable sense growing up that people were talking about me and talking about my family. Um, and, And the general theme was you don't belong. And for those people who haven't read the book yet, uh, The Color of Love, which um, which I highly recommend, uh, getting a copy and, and reading, it's very moving and, and it's beautiful. And I think it's something that anyone, no matter what your background is, whether you're Jewish or not Jewish, whether you grew up as uh, you know someone who would be identified as biracial or as um, other in some way or not, I think you could relate because there's so many aspects of the story that are just so relatable to the human condition. Um, but for those people who haven't read it, can you just share a little bit of the background so they have a sense of the context for what you're talking about right now? Um, so I was born in April of 1970 to a young white Jewish girl in New York. She was unmarried. Um, she got pregnant. She was about 19. You know, she got pregnant and called her rabbi and said, rabbi, I cannot keep this baby. And um, 
that particular, you know, back then, clergy and attorneys handled adoption on a regular basis. Um, and so this particular rabbi had been placing Jewish babies that needed homes with Jewish families for quite some time. And so he said, don't worry about it. I'll, you know, I'll send you away to be pregnant so nobody sees you. And I mean, this really is how it was done back then. And we'll find you a family. In the meantime, my parents back in Chicago had found out that they were infertile. And my mother's cousin had adopted her two kids for the same reason from this rabbi. So she, my cousin Adrian said to my mother, I'll call the rabbi and see if he can find you a baby. Um, my parents got a call on my dad's birthday that I had been born that day. So I was born on my father's birthday. And they flew to New York. And my mother tells the story that the attorney looked into the crib at the hospital and all the color drained out of his face. It was not what he was expecting. He looked at the nurse and he said, are you sure that's the right baby? And the nurse said, that's the baby. And and it's because I was brown and had dark curly hair. And, um, you know, everybody sort of lost their minds about it. And the rabbi called my parents and said, listen, there was a mistake made. We didn't know. Yeah, the rabbi called me a mistake. And, um, and he said, we didn't know that she was going to come out brown. You don't have to take her. And my parents said, what are you talking about? That's our uh, daughter. Of course we're taking her. And I was three days old. They packed me up and flew me back to Chicago. So I was, um, I, I joke that my family was definitely ahead of the curve in terms of, you know, interracial adoption. Um, because back then, people would consciously look for babies that looked like them so that people wouldn't ask questions. You know, adoption was not this celebrated thing. Um, but my parents really sort of had the, the full-on, there was no version of the story where anybody would think that I looked like them. Um, so I am half black and half white, um, and my family is as Ashkenazi and white as can be. My parents then went on to have two biological children. So I have a brother and a sister who are, you know, my brother has blue eyes, and, and I joke that he's so white that he's translucent. Um, so that's sort of the backdrop for I got to meet we're your uh, brother at the book signing at yes. the biennial. Tall? 6'9". Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's tall. Yes. Um, yeah, so I got, to, yes. I got to talk to him a little bit. Um, as, as the world has changed, in some ways, you'd think that not only would people not talk behind your back, but they wouldn't be confrontational about these kinds of things either. <laughs> and yet, obviously, we're living in, in this very strange time where, yeah. uh, in some ways... I experienced the world as being more accepting than ever before. Here at Stephen Weiss Temple, we're partnering with JQ, um, International Jewish Queer International, to do LBGTQ plus inclusion training at the temple and the school, things that, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you know, might not be on anyone's radar in the way they are today. And, you know, I I could point out lots of other examples of how inclusive we're being, and I could think, uh, point to families who are in the congregation today, where uh, who have stories that are somewhat similar to your own story, and no one bats an eye. And yet, on the other hand, we're living at this time where anti-Semitism is um, uh, is, is is growing in very disturbing ways, where racism mm-hmm. is um, is being experienced in, in in our country in ways that are just shocking, given it's 2020, and we thought that a lot of these things had already been um, kind of taken care of how do you make sense of that that. you never thought that no I I think I think for a long time there was a polite lid on Pandora's box Mm -hmm. and particularly when it came I don't think that racism and anti-semitism were ever taken care of um I like I said I think there was a polite lid on Pandora's box um I do believe that we now live in a socio-political climate where people that do hold those kinds of deep biases feel free to say and do as they please, and so they are. Now, somebody asked me, I think yesterday, if I think that's a good thing or not, if there is any benefit to that, and I would offer that there is, because we can no longer pretend that it's not a problem. You know, growing up, I would tell stories about things that would happen, and people would think, oh, she's exaggerating. That really can't happen. That doesn't happen. I've never seen it. Now we see it. We see it in front of our faces. We see it on social media every day. We see it on the news. We can no longer pretend that it's not a problem. When you don't acknowledge that a problem exists, you can't solve it. And 
I do think there's real power in people seeing what happens when these incidents take place. Well, and certainly there, I mean, part of the way I experience some of these kinds of things is certainly in terms of anti-Semitism, I had very few personal experiences growing up. And I was saying to someone the other day, I said, you know, for my daughters, anti-Semitism is much more real than it was for me. And they were surprised to hear that. And I said, and here's what I mean by that. Not that they have personally experienced um, anti-Semitic attacks and those kinds of things, but they have witnessed, as have we all, uh, synagogues being targeted Mm -hmm. and Jews being murdered in the United States in ways that actually had not happened before. It wasn't that mm-hmm. no Jew had ever been killed as an act of anti-Semitism, but, but like someone this. coming into a yeah. synagogue and shooting up the synagogue, that thankfully had not yet happened. And so in that regard, anti-Semitism is you know, more powerful. And when I think about um, you know, the election, uh, right before I made Aliyah with my, my family, um, we, it, was, it was the 2008 presidential campaign, mm-hmm. And just that moment in American life where there was um, a widely experienced, at least where I was, and I was living in the Bay Area at the time, sense of, wow, isn't it amazing? Look at what's happened in, in our country. Yeah. Like the, we, we elected a candidate who's African-American, and, and ultimately the American people showed that, you know, that, that wasn't going to be the deciding factor. And then he was reelected. Um, and, and that felt like a certain kind of um, vector you know, or, or a certain pivot point in American history. But obviously, we were wrong. It, it yeah. wasn't. And, and so, you know, yeah, we've taken care of anti-Semitism. We've taken care of racism. Guess what? You, you, you didn't, and you weren't deeply enough in it to know that already. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that Obama's election was a pivot point. We've now had another that is palpably different, right? Um, and what my fervent hope is, is that you know, anytime something swings wildly out of balance, it has to swing back the other way. We have to find a new equilibrium. And I am praying for it. That's one of the questions I often ask people about these kinds of trends, you know, is it, is it a pendulum or is it a vector? And if it's a vector, then, then we're in big trouble. Because that, that, yeah, that means it's just yeah. gonna keep going there. But if it's a pendulum, then like, okay, um, we can, this is a course and divided time and it feels like people are somehow have been given permission to, to say and do things that mm-hmm. previously we would have said, well, no, you can't say that. You can't do that. Um, but, but, but the pendulum will swing, I hope, the other way. And, you know, the moral arc will, will bend in the way we want it to. I join you in that, in that fervent prayer. And I know that we are not alone. It's, it's hard. One of the challenges that I think, uh, and it's part of the conversation today about privilege and uh, and also just trying to understand our own perspective. I, I interviewed um, a classmate of mine from college who's um, a writer for film and television, and, and uh, we talked about this in terms of a writer's voice. Can you write for, if you're a woman, can you write for a man? If you're white, can you write for someone who's African-American or a person of color? Um, how do you, and I guess what the question that's inspired by that is given your experience, which is not entirely unique. I mean, it is cause you're the only Mara Gad out there, but other people have similar kinds of stories in terms of um, their own identity and how they've been seen by others and mm-hmm. treated by others. But certainly your experience is not, um, is not common and, and not common in a lot of synagogues. So what are some things that you've learned through that experience that, that you feel like you've been able to communicate either through the book or, you know, as you've been on tour or in places that you've spoken, you know, what what kinds of messages can we hear from you, even though that's, that might not be our personal experience, but what can we learn from the things that you've experienced that can help us to have our eyes more open, I guess. You know, one of the things, and and it's what has been amazing um, for me is that for most of my life, I was deeply private about all of this. You know, when back in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, I was the only brown face in, a, in an ocean of Ashkenazi Jews. So for a long time, I really was the only one. And nobody wanted to talk about it. And when you're a teenager, when you're in junior high, when you're in college, you, all you want is to be liked. You want to be liked and, and a part of things. And trying to talk about this was not the way to do that, right? Everybody was uncomfortable enough as it was. Talking about it was not going to happen. 
But now that I have decided to speak and I'm at a place where I can speak, the evolution about even what I what I want to talk about has been remarkable over the last few months. And recently I've really been leaning into the notion that actually we talk a lot about how we cannot understand one another because like as an example, you're white male, I'm a woman of color, right? So how can you possibly understand my experience? But I would offer that we who other people deem to be othered, right? Whether it's because of religion or sexual identity or race, we all experience very similar things. As a Jew, you know what it is to be talked about. You know what it is to be whispered about. You know what it is to actually have vitriol hurled your way because you are a Jew. That experience is very similar for people of color, for people who are LGBTQ+, for people who are differently abled. It is, it's all the same, just channeled differently. And so I would offer that we actually do understand one another's experiences much more. And if we take a minute to consider a larger empathic path, we can be more understanding. There's actually more of we who are othered than not. But I think everybody sort of leans into their silos and and stays in their own little group and they think about their own experiences so much. It's not that hard to open yourself up. And yes, I am biracial and Jewish and that is the lens through which I speak and that's the lens through which I wrote my book. But it's very easy for me, and I happen to not be gay, but it's very easy for me to look at my friends who are and imagine what they feel like when people say and do horrible things to them simply because they're gay. That is not a stretch. Um, And it's one of the things I believe that we should talk about more, you know, that we really are more alike than we are different. All well, of the us. exercise is, is also one that, um, you know, where we, we would invite people to spend time thinking about the ways in which they feel outside, yeah. they feel other, they feel um, alienated, and then channel some of that, that, that feeling and that experience into a deeper form of empathy. People, people have come to me and said that they connected to my book in ways that were really profound and personal for them. And, and, and it would always surprise me because one person said, you know, they were the only person in their class that had, brown, uh, that had blonde hair. And you know, in, in Hebrew school, all of the girls had brown hair. And for her, that was really marginalizing. Um, another person was the only kid who had divorced parents. And everybody else had married parents, and she felt marginalized for that. And while it is different, right, that it, what I've experienced just simply in terms of racism is very different, but nonetheless, they were able to connect and because we were all able to say, okay, let's talk about that. The, the level of empathy and the level of openness to what is something really hard to talk about, um, it, it became magnified. You know, I think racism, intolerance, I do think it's one of the hardest things to talk about because no one wants to be perceived as being racist. Even David Duke does not describe himself as being racist. He describes himself as a proud white nationalist. And and so and and in particular because of the, you know, sort of socio-political climate, everyone is on high alert right now talking about this. And people have dug in and nobody feels, no one's talking to each other. And what I feel so privileged to be doing right now is to be talking face to face in rooms all over the country about exactly the very hard thing because we've all calmed down and said, oh no, I I do have an idea about what that might feel like. Um, And that's been really powerful for me. One of the things that I think is so amazing about the Jewish story is that we our master narrative is about our otherness. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. That's at the core of our narrative. And then that should inspire empathy. And so many times in the Torah and so many rabbis and, and others like to um, point out that uh, by most counts, 36 times in, in the Torah, the mitzvah, the commandment to love the stranger is repeated. 
and to me, that's just a, a you know, a wonderful and powerful lesson in the importance of empathy. So if you begin the story by thinking about a time when you were humiliated, you were degraded in some way, you were othered in some way, you were oppressed in some way, and then and then you channel that into a certain kind of action that really is about compassion and love, that's the way to respond to these very human kinds of experiences and these very human kinds of um, realities, which is that we all in some ways, uh, obviously for some much more dramatically and more powerfully and painfully than others, because we're different people with different experiences, but everybody can relate to that. And even while while it might seem kind of silly, well, blonde hair, brown hair, I mean, is that really the same thing that Mara went through? No, it's not. But can some of that experience help her to understand more deeply the experience you had? Yeah. And then the answer to that is yes, it can. So there's some beauty in that. I want to ask you about what, what I, and, and uh, for those of you who haven't read the book, this is a bit of a spoiler, um, but Uh-oh. it's one of the most powerful parts of your story. And so maybe without going into too much detail, we can talk about kind of the bigger picture of it. But but you, there's a member of your family um, who has not been accepting to you, um, uh, your great aunt, and uh, and more than that, I mean, she was outright racist yeah. uh, and said incredibly hurtful things. But then at a later point in her life, um, because of uh, her own illness, um, dementia, Alzheimer's, she needs you, and and you open your heart to her. Can you talk a little bit about as you reflect on that experience? Um, and it's and it's extraordinary to read about. Um, what did you learn by opening yourself and taking care of her, this person who'd hurt you in many, many ways? Um, what what did that teach you? Um, you know, I think, and again, I do believe this is a common experience, right? When when you feel when there has been someone in your life that has abused you in some way, and racism is an abuse, right? It's an abuse of the soul. Um, we say things like, well, I'll wear a red dress to their funeral or I wouldn't, you know, I'll step over their body. I wouldn't, I wouldn't cross the street to help this person. But when you are presented with that moment where you actually have to make that choice, um, it's really powerful. Um, and for me, it really wasn't a choice, right? She had been horrific to me. She had also been a surrogate parent to my mother growing up. And she was in need of help and care. And my mother couldn't give it to her. And, and I knew that I knew what was the right thing to do. And I simply did it. Um, and when I roll the tape back, a lot of people will say to me, you would have been absolutely right to leave her there. She deserved for what she did to you to be left where she was and to have to like ride out her days not well cared for. But that would have been an act of vengeance. And to know that I am not a vengeful person, to know that I choose, not even with any effort, that I choose to be loving, that I choose to be kind, that I know that love is a, it is a superpower, right? It's, the, it's much more powerful than hate. And to know that I don't just say that, that I embody that because I was able to to not have to think twice. That's a gift. Well, and the idea that that every moment is a choice, I yes. think is so powerful too. And, and it's so deeply Jewish. You know, at the end of Deuteronomy, um, I place before you, we read this on Yom Kippur, yes, life, life and, and death, death, blessing and Choose curse. Life. Choose life. But but ultimately it is a choice. You you get to decide, am I going to open my heart to this person or, or remain not. closed? Am yes. I going to tap into the the, the worst parts of who I am, the, the, the bigoted and racist parts of my, my experience and, and my inclination, or am I going to rise above that? Am I going to welcome, or am I going to push back? I mean, am I going at every to moment we can choose. Win? Right. If I had chosen to be vengeful, then hate wins. I would be a different person than I am today and not one I would be proud of, you know? And, and I do think that we get to choose our lives everything in them. We get to choose how we carry ourselves in this world. And, um, and there is such power in that. There is such grace in honoring that choice. We talk a lot about free will, right? That God created us with free will. But, but really being conscious of that, that's an amazing thing. And to say, no, I do choose this. I do choose that. And mm. I reject this. 
It's interesting too the the in in the Jewish tradition, the text that that illustrates that we have been given free will. The first text that illustrates that is the story of Cain and Abel, mm-hmm. and it's about a moment of someone feeling othered or at least outside. So, and God says to Cain, you know, you can choose evil. That's right. Sin is crouching at the door, but you can also master it. So, what's the choice going to be? Yeah. Um, and it also comes out of when we think about racism and bigotry and xenophobia, you know, it comes out of a feeling of of being hurt. You know, Mm -hmm. why did God choose Abel's offering and not mine? And there's that that anger. And it relates to something you wrote in the book, uh, this less thanism. Um, And you write about how, you know, out out of feeling less than um, comes racism, hatred, intolerance. And you describe those as human conditions. And I love what you say next, though, is that you say, um, but they're, they're human problems which we can solve. Yes. Um, can you say a little bit more about that in terms of your own experience and, and things that you've seen as uh, how these are, are human conditions yeah. and also uh, problems that we can solve as human beings? You know, I think often, again, we focus on ourselves and our own singular experience. But if you think about it, to your point with Cain and Abel, for as long as there have been human beings on the planet, There has been one human being telling another or a group of human beings telling another human being, another group, you are less than, you don't deserve the same privileges, the same respect, you don't deserve to be free, you don't deserve to live. It is happening 24 hours a day all over the world. It is not just about black and white. It is not just about Jewish versus non-Jewish or, um, you know, American born versus immigrant. It is every single corner of the world, 24 hours a day. It's not unique to us. And therefore, I do believe it is our collective human issue to solve together, right? I have had my intolerant moments. I'm not proud of that. But I can say that because I'm human. I don't pretend to be some holier than thou. I've never thought or said or done something I'm not proud of toward another human being. But unless we acknowledge all of us that it is all of our problem, we can't get anywhere. And part of what is happening right now is, I I keep coming back to this, people won't talk to each other. And and I honor that, that no, it is not anyone's job to teach somebody else how to treat people, right? And there are a lot of people who say, I'm not here to answer your questions. I don't owe you my answers, my time, anything. You figure it out for yourself. I don't, for me, I don't find that productive. The questions about me have been the same for 50 years. For as long as I've been on this planet, it's been the same. There's a misconception that Jews are white and black people are Muslim or Christian, and I defy that entire paradigm. And so the questions have always been the same, and I figure... Well, if we can talk about it, then maybe we can stop asking those questions and move on to something else, you know? But there has to be a notion of all of us together. All of us. And that's where I think we need to do some work because there definitely is still this sense, oh, well, I don't do that. I would never do that. Other people do that. Therefore, it's other people's problems. Um, and that's simply not true. Sure. There, there are a lot of people that will say, well, that would never happen at my synagogue. I'm going to tell you a secret. It happens at every synagogue. You just may not hear about it. But it happens everywhere. Um, and we and have because, to start because of, that be okay. And because of your own experience and, 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 and the privilege that you might have, it, it would sometimes be impossible for you to see. Um, you know, when you, I want to ask you about this in a moment, but um, I got a chance to meet you and and uh, and first be exposed to your book at the URJ Biennial, and it was only at that moment that I I learned about a series of really painful and unfortunate experiences that you'd had going to be a presenter at Biennial um, that were racist and uh, and and intolerant kinds of experiences, and it was particularly painful, by the way, to hear about it because um, I always given our experience, given that master narrative of we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, I hold us as a people to a really a different, you know, standard when it comes to these kinds oh, of no, things. Oh, no, we should know better. No, of knowing, course we should know better. Knowing that there are Jews who are racist. Like, yeah. I, I know that. And I've, uh, I grew up 
in a time when you know Schwarze jokes were um, were told by like my great aunts and uncles, and I had to ask other family members like what I don't even I don't get it because I didn't understand. The first Yiddish word I learned was Schwarze because that's what people were calling me in the family. And I didn't I didn't know Yiddish. Um, I grew up yeah. in Omaha. My uh, my grandparents' generation they all spoke Yiddish, and yeah. so I would hear that, and I said, "What is this?" And it was also a time in America where I knew that that wasn't good. I knew that like you you're not supposed to make those kinds of jokes. And um, I'd watched Archie Bunker, and I saw yeah. that like part of the whole point was like, "No, don't be a Neanderthal like Archie Bunker and make those kinds of jokes. That's not who we are." So to hear a Jew make the joke, it to me there was a disconnect. There was like, of I, don't, "I don't get it. We people hate us for being Jewish." And so, but at the same time, I was not so naive as to as to think that that doesn't exist in our community. So, um, so when you have these kinds of experiences repeatedly, um, again and again and again. Uh, what what makes it for you so that you don't just give up and say, you know what, I wash my hands of the Jewish community, I wash my hand of organized religion, I wash my hand, they're all hypocrites, and uh, and, 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 I'm, and I'm not going to feel welcomed or um, at home in, in any um, house of worship, and therefore I, I'm, I'm parting ways. You thankfully have not done that. But what, what why not? Why not simply say that this community has rejected me too many times for me to keep coming back? Um. It's a few things, and I, I will offer very candidly. I've been in therapy for going on 30 years at this point um, because at a certain point, the pain of the realities of my life became so unbearable that I didn't think I would survive it. I do consider it a miracle that I'm still alive. I think that our pain is so toxic. Pain and anger will kill you, whether it is by illness or by you know, there's a reason why, why things eat us up, you know? And so I knew that I needed help figuring out how to carry myself in the world, um, and how to process through the pain and anger of, of simply constantly being told that God didn't make you the right way. Right. Um, so that is, that is a huge thing. It is something I, I continue to be proudly selfish about. Um, and because I, I do the work. I I am finally at a place where my wholeness is that I am black and white and Jewish, right? And I no longer take in any voice that tries to tell me who I am, what I'm not, and where I belong. Now that's taken an extraordinary amount of work. Um, and I am Jewish. I love being Jewish. If I had to choose a religion, I would choose being Jewish. I think it's beautiful. I think that what Judaism teaches is beautiful. I don't always enjoy Jews and the way that they treat me. (laughs) But I'm not going to stop being who and what I am because other people are uncomfortable with that. And so a part of my evolution is to no longer accept that I'm other. I'm not other. I belong everywhere I want to be. And that includes in synagogue. That includes in Israel. That includes at Biennial. That includes everywhere that I want to be. Every space, every Jewish space, every black space, every human space that I wish to occupy is mine to occupy because I'm here. Um, It has taken me a lot of work to get there. But I won't let anybody tell me that that I can't be. And I do think that some of the best parts of me are because I'm Jewish. So you guys are stuck with me. <laughs> um, but it is a fair question to ask why stay. And I would offer that there are plenty of people who do not make the choice that I have. They do walk away. I am going to synagogue, as we talked about earlier, tomorrow night. Um, And a young woman and her mother, a young woman reached out to me on Facebook, and she is driving up from Long Beach to simply feel like she will not be alone in synagogue. And part of the exchange that we had, she said, oh, someday there'll be a place for us. And I said, you know what? There is a place for us. We just have to claim it. But but it is really hard to keep coming back when the door gets slammed in your face all the time. And because I'm not the only one anymore. 
if we are not mindful of our behavior and careful, we're going to cannibalize ourselves. We cannot continue to marginalize people or we will no longer be. There is no us and them. There is we. And we've got to figure that out because people won't come back. You wouldn't go back to a restaurant that isn't nice to you. Why would you go back to a community, right? Absolutely. We're working with um, a couple of organizations right now at, at, at the temple to try to find ways to be more inclusive, to build a community that's more welcoming, to have everybody feel at home and feel a part of uh, without having to pretend that there aren't any d- disagreements about anything, there aren't any political d- differences, there aren't any um, differences in terms of experience or privilege or other or otherness or other kinds of things. Without denying those realities, still, how can we make room for everybody? And it's really exciting work, and it's hard mm-hmm. because it means confronting certain things and, and surfacing certain things, raising things up that you know might be uncomfortable to talk about. Uh, but it's been it's been really exciting. So I mentioned a little bit earlier, before we started recording, um, that we're working with JQ International around LGBTQ plus inclusion. Uh, we've been working on how people with different physical abilities can feel more at home on our campus. Um, and I was looking forward to this conversation in terms of thinking about ways that Jews of color can feel and and people of color. Um, can feel more comfortable on this campus and feel um, welcomed here, whether they're here as a guest, whether they're a, a member of the temple, mm-hmm. whether they're an employee of the synagogue, they should feel you know, at home here. And one of the things that makes our congregation somewhat um, unique is that we're a reform synagogue on the west coast of uh, America with a very large uh, Persian Jewish population. And there's a debate within the Persian Jewish community today, or do, uh, do they see themselves as Jews of color or not? And I uh, just finished teaching a class with Saba Sumach. I don't know if you know Saba. She works at AJC. I do. And she's a, a scholar of um, of the Los Angeles, but in particular the the L.A. Persian Jewish community. And um, and she argues that you know Persian Jews are Jews of color, um, but not all uh, Persian Jews see themselves that way. And uh, and yet, you know, that, and then that raises a whole question of like who gets to define you in terms of your own, you know, the way you see yourself um, and the way you, you identify yourself. But but that whole conversation, I think, is a really interesting one. And having spent five years living in Israel and being there during a time, you know, where Ethiopian mm-hmm. Jewry in meaningful numbers um, were resettled to Israel and witnessing uh, racism on the one hand in ways that were d- disturbing and you know profoundly problematic, and also a country that more or less said, well, you know, we'll 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 support having our tax dollars be used to bring these people who I guess are our brothers and sisters here, notwithstanding the challenges that might come with it. So seeing both of those things at the same time and on a more embracing level, you know, Israelis literally streaming into the streets to 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 welcome busloads of Ethiopians coming off of the airplanes. I mean, like a real mix of reactions. Mm-hmm. So I think that that whole conversation about um, what does it mean to be Jewish? Or uh, is it possible for a Jew really to be white? Um, a Jew could certainly pass as white, but ultimately, like, is, is your Judaism something that that makes you so other that you're not white. I mean, all of these are really, to me, interesting conversations to be having, and not just on an intellectual level, but on a real lived human level, which is, well, what about your experience? And what about the experience of other Jews who walk into our doors and say, wait a second, I want to feel at home here, and yet I don't always feel at home here. Well, you know, I actually don't use the term Jew of color to describe myself. Um, It didn't exist until fairly recently, um, and it is one that is often applied to me. but And I deeply respect that there are people who embrace it. Um, but to me, it's a micro-divider that is a part of the problem, right? Um, for decades, I felt like I had to wear this invisible T-shirt that listed all of the things that should make it safe for you to consider me to be Jewish and to be around me. Um, and just like my mother does not introduce her children and say, Mara is my adopted child and these two are my biological child. I don't introduce my friend Susie as my friend Susie the Jew by choice. Susie is just a Jew. My mother just has children. I believe that Jew of color micro divides us and says, no, 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 this is okay. This is a Jew too. And 
until, again, un until there is no us and them. I, th I think it's another subtle way of saying there's an us and there's a them. There's Ashkenazi and there's non-Ashkenazi. And certainly the Persian community, the Mizrahi community, the Sephardi community, there, you know, the Moroccan Jews in Israel had felt marginalized forever. Um, we don't need to be micro-dividing ourselves. We're Jews. We're, we can hardly handle sometimes just conservative and reform and orthodox and reconstructionist, right? To further micro-divide ourselves. Is that productive at all? Can't we all just be Kehila Kedosha, a holy community of all of us here together? Um, and so I don't choose that term for myself. Um, I was not thrilled to hear that people are talking about building JCCs that are just for people of color. I think you segregate yourself because you don't feel safe. That's a red flag. People should feel safe and welcome. Um, simply because we are here. There's such sacredness in simply being human. And the more that we layer on these divisions, the more we get away from that. Um, yeah, it's, it's challenging. And there's the weight of Jewish history, which is you know, going back to certainly biblical times, the tribes of Israel and tribal uh, boundaries, tribal mm -hmm. distinctions, and, and then later an actual uh, split between the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. Um, and then throughout the period of the diaspora, all the distinctions that you just talked about, some of them ethnic and, you know, cultural linguistic distinctions. So, you know, Persian Jews versus Iraqi Jews, they spoke mm -hmm. different languages, different cuisines. Um, and then you have the um, ideological and in terms of religiosity and observance distinctions, mm -hmm. whether it's reform or conservative orthodox. And then you have the layer today in America of, you know, the political distinctions. Yes. Are you, you know, Jews for Bernie, Jews for Trump? And suddenly when they can't talk to each other because, yes, we're one, we're, you know, we're connected in some deep ways, but we're living in a political climate where we don't even talk to each other. We demonize each other in so such powerful ways. So I think it's I think it is incredibly complex, but I couldn't agree with you more that at the end of the day, um, we're, we're, we are uh, a, a Jewish family and we have a shared history and a shared destiny. And what my mom used to say, um, she would always say when she would, when Jews would fight with each other, she'd say, it's pretty dark actually what she would say, but there's a real truth to it. She'd say, uh, Hitler wouldn't make any distinctions. That's you know, right. Maragad, Yoshi Zweibach, <laughs> guess what? You're both going. You're both going yeah. because you're a Jew, you're a Jew. It doesn't That's matter. That's right. So, and actually the law of return really recognizes that. If you know, if you have a Jewish yeah. grandfather or grandmother, you're, you're a Jew. And it, it's in part because of that. I wanted to ask you, um, so I mentioned earlier your, your experience at the Biennial, and some people who are listening will maybe have read about it, um, but if you could uh, explain a little bit about what, what you encountered when you came to the URJ Biennial and what made it particularly ironic and, um, and painful just as an attendee hearing the story. And so uh, the Hebrew expression is lahavdil, you know, I'm not comparing that experience, just hearing your story to the experience you had that was, you know, your pain. But just hearing the story, I was like, oh my goodness, with a lot of the talk that we had heard at the biennial about inclusion and about the number, they use the, the language uh, of Jews of color. Uh, and um, I, I don't know if it was a Pew study or there was a study that was done that said something like 25% of Jews under the age of 30 uh, would either self-identify or be identified yeah. as Jews of color. So there was oh, all of this wonderful, <laughs> all of it, me too, all of this wonderful conversation about about that. And then uh, I came to your um, to the book talk with uh, my colleague and also classmate, along with Alan Berlin, Jonah Pesner. We were all in the same the same cohort. But oh. I came to that talk, and then at that talk, you shared some of the really painful experiences that you had. And then during the talk, there was a Q and A. Um, someone asked a question that in some ways kind of made the point all over again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then later there was a Facebook post um, that you made where you, you shared the experience that you had and the uh, president of our movement, Rick Jacobs, uh, publicly, uh, you know, in social media at least, responded to you. So for the people who don't know any of the context, maybe not just share a little bit about what happened, but to me, you know, like, what, what do we do with this? Now several months have passed 
Um, what have you learned? What kinds of responses have you heard? And, and how do we hopefully move forward in a, in a way of love and, and, and openness and empathy? Um, so let's see. I, I will start by saying that the invitation to be a featured speaker at Biennial was thrilling for me because it was in my hometown of Chicago in my movement. You know, for me, it really felt like such a grand homecoming. Right, and I'd already been on the road for a couple of months with the book, um, and so I was really, I was hopeful and excited and honored that this was how 2019 was going to end. Right, um, but when I got there, it was catastrophically bad in the other direction. Um, I did go to the Wrigley Field special tour um, and met the group from the URJ at the ballpark and I saw people standing in front and I walked up and I said, hi, are you here with the URJ biennial group? And a man immediately turned to me and he looked at me and, and there's a look people get. There is a, it's a look in their eyes that I cannot describe. You just have to see it and you know that you're in trouble. And he, he turned on me and he said, who are you and what are you doing here? And I explained I'm a featured speaker on Shabbat afternoon. And he said, well, what could you possibly be speaking about? I mean, really, with like this skepticism and vitriol in his voice. So it started there. Um, but when I went to... Welcome home to Chicago, yeah, and, and And it turned out that this particular person was a member of clergy, which became even more distressing when I found out who this person was. Um, but then I went to... It was not any of the rabbis that we've mentioned in the podcast, so just to protect the innocent. Yes. No, no, no. It was not any of the rabbis we've talked about. Um, but then I went to pick up my badge at McCormick Place, and my handler had not yet gotten there. She was supposed to meet me at the desk. And I, I said, hi, you know, I'm here to pick up my badge. The name is Mara Gad. And the person behind the desk, who was maybe 20 years old, looked at me and said, oh, I'm so sorry, but the real Mara Gad has to pick up the badge. And I looked at her and I said, sweetie, I am the real Marcad. And bear in mind, my picture had been on the biennial website for months, on the homepage, in the middle. And so I, I couldn't believe, and, and instead of just saying, I'm so sorry, can I have your ID? The questions persisted. Really? You're the real Marcad? I was like, I really am the real Marcad. And the person said, um, well, are you press? And I said, no, I'm a featured speaker on Shabbat afternoon. Still, no request for an ID. And so it became very apparent that I was not getting my badge without you know, being subjected to these, these questions and questions and questions. So I finally get the badge, and the badge is bright orange. And it says presenter across the bottom in big letters. And I went to the plenary that day, and then I went out into the general population to try to find my way from one place to another, which is virtually impossible at McCormick it's Place. It's not easy to get around. That place is difficult. Yeah, no, it's very challenging. And immediately, the pointing and the whispering, and who is she, and what could she be doing here, started. And then I got into a, one of many wrong elevators that day, and somebody looked at me and said, excuse me, but I need to talk to you about my room service. My room service orders have not been coming in a timely manner, and I need you to fix that. So they thought you were an employee. They thought that I worked for the, the hotel, the in hotel. spite of my neon orange badge mm -hmm. that said presenter and URJ Biennial on it. And I looked at the person and I said, I don't work here. And there was no apology. There was simply, well, I assumed you did. So I'm now feeling that it's very clear that even the fancy badge was not going to be enough of an indicator that I'm actually one of you. Um, and I got into another elevator and there were a bunch of people all wearing their biennial badges who were animatedly talking until I got on the elevator and then they stopped talking. And um, they started whispering about me in the elevator. Well, who could that be? I mean, it says she's a presenter, but what, like I wasn't even there. And it just, it, and, and it was a day of that. Everywhere I went, it was that. And so I, you know, I called my agent first and I said, I can't believe this is happening. You know, they think I'm hotel staff. They're talking about me. Nobody's being nice. I connected with a couple of people at the URJ and told them that this had happened. And I felt deeply uncomfortable being out among the general population and that I was not willing to go to anything. I wasn't going to subject myself to that. 
further. Um, and so people from the URJ staff started walking me from place to place. Um, and I will say Rachel Roth, who is the head of the ACC, um, she's somebody I grew up with as well. And she took time out of her biennial schedule to walk me from place to place. And she noted the people who were pointing and whispering. And, and she was horrified. She's like, Mara, I can't believe this is what's going on. So by the time we got to my presentation, um, I was in conversation with Jonah Pesner from the Rack, and we talked about it in advance and agreed we would talk about this in the room. This was the whole point. And so um, in the room, I shared these stories, and there was one woman in the audience who, during the Q&A, you could tell that she really was trying to get the attention of the moderator. And, and she tried to grab the microphone from somebody a couple of times. And at the very end, he finally called on her. And she looked at me. And my mother was there and my brother and my sister. And she said, you know something? I have been sitting here and thinking about this. And you were there the whole time. And you, Mara, could have made this so much better for yourself if you had just made this a teachable moment and taken upon yourself to explain yourself. You should have confronted the people on the... And she launched into this tirade about how it was basically my fault that these people were marginalizing me, that I am other, and it's up to me to teach them that I'm actually Jewish. And the room erupted because to your point, that was exactly the point at a biennial where one of the things that Rick Jacobs spoke about from the pulpit was expanding our tent and being more welcoming, those same people that were applauding him were demanding that I get their room service out faster. That was exactly the point, that I had made it past security and had my badge and that still wasn't good enough. Um, and it was horrible and painful. There is nothing worse than being told that you are the reason why people are attacking you. Um, so that is what happened for people who don't know. Um, and I said it then, and I said it on Facebook, and I will say it again and again. I do believe that there is real good to come from this. We talked about it earlier. What happened in the room when that woman turned on me was horrible. It was really horrible for my family because they had to let me handle it myself. But anybody who was in that room watched it happen in real time. You cannot pretend that that's not a real problem because you saw it for your own eyes. So the 200-ish people that were there got to see that. And that changes you. And I do believe that there we can take this and say, okay, this happened. The leadership of our movement was at Biennial, and this is what happened. So... How can we? Well, a, you were you were in conversation with Rabbi Jonah Pesner, that's who's right. the head of the Rack, you know, and he and so he was sitting right there watching this unfold, and in he that couldn't sense, stop it either. Yeah, yeah. No, but in that sense, in terms of can can something good come from an experience that was so painful for you, and and I'm sure for your family, Horribly and painful. maybe for other people who were attendees of Biennial, you know, who, who haven't shared their stories yet, um, and less so because it's not. We're not you, but but sitting in the room that day, it was profoundly uncomfortable. First, just hearing the story where I was aghast, you know, like, oh, my goodness, I was ashamed that these things had happened to you or to anybody in any setting like that. I was just like horrified to hear it. And then and, you know, then at the end to have it end in the way it did, it's just like, oh, my goodness. But but we saw it and we witnessed yeah. it. And then um, so then you, you posted about it and, yeah. and there was a response from Rabbi Jacobs, and I'm sure you've gotten lots of other responses and, and people reaching out to you. As you look back on, and that was in December, and, yeah. and here we are, uh, February. Um, is anything changed in you? Anything um, kind of new insights into, into all of this, given your entire experience and everything you wrote in this book, and then to have this happen in your hometown, in your home movement, and obviously, you know, every single person at the biennial did not treat you this way, but many people did. Yeah. And and others might have even witnessed it and, you know, not said anything. Kept it moving. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so notwithstanding the fact that, you know, that it, that it wasn't everyone, it wasn't just some isolated experience. You had multiple experiences. Uh, how is this in any way 
changed you or, or changed the way you think about, you know, these things? Um, you know, it was the first time that I spoke in real time about experiences like this. Um, and that was a really big deal. Me getting up in the room like that and recounting that story in real time was a first for me. Um, and I think it was important because a lot of times what happens to we who get marginalized is that we don't talk about it. And we try to talk about it later. And again, there's such a palpable discomfort around it anyway that we're not talking about it. And so I think that was a good to come out of it. Um, I, You know, the conversation that this set of experiences prompted is still going on. The very notion that I'm sitting here with you now a couple of months later, we're still talking about it, I think is good. Um, and I have been reached out to by, at this point, thousands of people, um, some clergy, some, some people who are Ashkenazi, some people who are not, um, sharing their thoughts, sharing their stories. Um, I was not the only non-white Jew at Biennial to sit alone on Shabbat evening because they did not feel comfortable out in the general population. I received at least five messages on Facebook from other people who were at Biennial who were not white, who experienced exactly what I experienced. But they were just there as attendees. They didn't have the platform that I did. So, you know, has there been... I know that a lot of rabbis have spoken about Biennial from the pulpit. I do get emails from... I got one today um, talking about what happened and how we can you know, extend this into a larger discussion. Um, you know, but in terms of, that's all sort of very individual, right? Like, I don't have any sense of what the URJ may or may not do on the heels of this happening. Um, and I do hope, and I said this in my response to what Rick Jacobs posted, that, you know, an apology without action, that's simply words. So let's see what we can now do. There's good to be done now. It's out there. The Band-Aid's been ripped off. It's out there. So let's do. Um, I don't know what the doing looks like yet. And I, I, I pray for it. And I hope for it. And, um, you know, I, it's hard to say. I think that individuals, and, and on some level it does all boil down to individuals. Like if we look at the name badge issue alone, I know that the URJ trained their volunteers to ask everybody to greet them and say, can I see your ID, please? That isn't what happened to me because the individual that I happened to be across the table from had a bias that reared its head. I'm sure that at your synagogue, your ushers are trained like, to, to greet everybody with the same smile and good Shabbos. But if someone has a bias, someone like me tends to raise that bias, and, and you can't stop that from happening. It just happens. For them, it is a natural reaction, no matter how much training and how much talking we do. Um, and so the question is, how can we as individuals take this story, these sets of stories, and say, do I do that? You know, we don't even have to say it out loud if you just sit with yourself for 10 or 15 minutes and say, do I do that to people? You know, I, I asked a group of people the other day at a book event, if you didn't know that I was coming and my picture weren't all over the building and I walked in, would you smile at me and say welcome or would you wonder what I was doing there? Would you view me as a threat? And I said, don't, don't, don't say it out loud. Just ask yourself if we start there and acknowledge, maybe I would have looked at you funny. Maybe I was one of those people who wondered if you worked for the hotel then we can start to, to create systematic change. But again, it does all boil down to individuals being able to say, I can do better here. Um, and I do hope that there is systematic change that comes. Um, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. I do, I mean, listen, the reform movement has, I've been begging for this conversation for 30 years. But we're finally having it. And, and the movement you know, has started to dig into these issues. They started a, a couple of years ago. And I think that that's wonderful. But we have more to do. And, and I think you're right. It has to, you know, ultimately it has to happen one individual at a time. That's right. Because the movement can 
say all the right things and, yeah. and have all the right kinds of materials. But that person who took your name badge, had that she person, was the person. <laughs> followed the protocol, yeah. it would have started differently. Other yeah. other things would have invariably have happened. Yeah. But that would have that would have made a difference. And maybe then, you know, one other thing. Um, there's a beautiful teaching in Pirkei Avot about, uh, about the way people see each other. And it's Altista Kel Bakankan, Ele Bamashe Yeshbo. You know, you show he's, it's, it's the Jewish, don't judge a book by its cover. You, you, you don't look at the, at the jug, you look at the, the wine inside of it, because sometimes there's a beat up looking wine jug and there's great wine inside. That's right. And sometimes it's the reverse. And, you know, how do we train our eyes and our hearts and our ears to really try to look at the content of someone's character and try to get a sense of who that person is, as opposed to putting people in boxes and say, oh, okay, Mara is is this. Um, she's biracial. She's a Jew of color. She's, um, or this person is a Persian Jew. This person is a Jew by choice. You know, however we want to, he's gay, she's lesbian, whatever boxes we want to put people in and then, and then make judgments about them, um, exclude them in certain ways or, or include them in other ways and say, oh, so she's one of us. And so mm-hmm. I'm going to bring this person, which, um, might feel good to be included, but maybe it's for all the wrong reasons. It's like, wait a second, you you don't even know me. What's that about? So how do we do that? And and what inspires me is that um is that such a conversation has been um has been inspired and hopefully it will not just be words. It will it will result in um hearts that are changed and in um you know experiences that change so that you will have fewer and fewer and then no experiences like Please, that. Please God. Um <laughs> I don't know that I will live to see that. I, I'll be very honest with you. I don't know that I will live to see that in my lifetime. But to your point, there are 25%, 25% of our community self-identifies as being of color. Let them experience that. You know? I, I'm a crier. I'm sorry. I just, I've never thought that it's that hard. I've never understood why it's so hard, but it is. When I worked at Hess Kramer and I was program director, I got up on the first day of camp and I, I said, listen, at Olam Haba, everybody would get their first choice for Hugim, but this is not Olam Haba, so you might get number two or number three and you're going to be okay. I acknowledge that in Olam Haba, nobody would question whether or not I'm in the right place ever or question my Judaism or my skin color or, 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 or. We're not there yet. But I believe in, I believe in the sacredness of of being human. I believe that we can get there. I actually believe we want to. Um, and if I can be a tiny part of that, then that's my honor while I'm here. You know. Mara, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you for your beautiful book. Thank you for uh, for your time today, and uh, and I hope that we'll be able to continue the conversation and that the conversations that you inspire and uh and that are inspired by by your book and and by your story can help bring us closer to alam haba to the world that that we uh, aspire to the world that we deserve the world that uh that we know is the kind of world that god wants for us so thank you thank you for having me Well, that's our podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to the show. And if you'd like to share it with a friend, please do so. Thanks for tuning in.